Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. Welcome to 2023, the, the January edition of AJT Highlights. Um, we're really excited to have you in the new year. We have four papers today, and as always, Roz Manon from University of Nebraska Medical Center as my co-host is with me today. And we also have one of our editorial fellows, James Hendeley, who's a transplant surgeon at Leahy Clinic, who is going to be discussing the first two papers. So as always, I'm going to go over our the papers just up front, and then we'll take take a dive in. So the first paper that James is going to review is by Frasco et al. It's entitled Days Alive and Out of Hospital Following Liver Transplant, Comparing a Patient-Centered Outcome Between DCD and DBD Graft Recipients. The second paper that James will be discussing is entitled Acute Liver Failure and Unique Challenges of Pediatric Liver Transplantation Amid a Worldwide Cluster of Adenovirus-Associated Hepatitis by Bang Kusu et al. And then Roz will discuss a paper with the, the authors are Paraxlis and Knekli, entitled Information Designed to Support Growth, Quality, and Equity of the U.S. Transplant System. And then I'll finish it off with a kind of a basic translational paper by Mukun Huber et al., Optimum Timing of Antithymocyglobulin in Relation to Adoptive Treg Cell Therapy. So we have four papers this time and um, look forward to the discussion. So James... Welcome, and uh, look forward to the you discussing the first paper. All right, Josh. Thank you, Rosalind. Thank you uh, for having me. Um, hello to the um, AJT audience. Um, so, as you mentioned, this is a paper um, out of um, the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, um, looking at kind of a unique uh, what they describe as a patient-centered outcome, and comparing um, their cohorts of. Uh, recipients of DCD and DBD uh, liver allografts at their single institution over a four-year period. And the primary outcome that they studied was something called uh, days alive and out of hospital, which they define as the initial length of stay and then the duration of any subsequent readmissions for the first year. So for example, a 10-year, uh, I'm sorry, a 10-day hospital stay and then a five-day readmission a month later, so 15 days so the days alive and out of hospital in a one-year period for that person would be 365 less 15, so 350 days. So in short, the higher the days alive and out of hospital, uh, the better the patient is doing. Um, the authors also looked at some secondary outcomes, including early allograft dysfunction um, and then hepatic artery and biliary complications. Um, just to kind of um, uh, give you a preview of, of their most significant findings, um, early allograft uh, dysfunction and ischemic cholangiopathy uh, were both greater in the DCD recipients, as ha has been described elsewhere. They didn't uh, find a significant uh, difference in primary outcome days alive and out of hospital among recipients of uh, DCD and DBD uh, grafts. They, uh, in the introduction, go over you know some of the background on days alive and out of hospital. It's been used in um, other arenas as a holistic measure of um, post-operative uh, outcomes. And the, um, uh, the authors um, hypothesized that patients receiving DCD allografts uh, would have uh, greater healthcare utilization related to early allograft dysfunction and other complications, therefore a lower days alive and out of hospital. 
just in brief, their methods were, you know, fairly kind of intuitive based on other similar papers, retrospective study, four-year period of 2014 to 2018. They, um, of note, included rehab admissions as part of uh, Days Alive and in-hospital. Uh, so those counted towards towards the total um, admission time in the one-year period that they studied. And um, they did not uh, record um, outpatient ERCPs as part of that total, but they did make note of the number of ERCPs performed. And so that kind of hints at some institutional um, variation that um, a really specialized high volume DCD centric center like Arizona may have with, with a, a different center. They define early allograft dysfunction um, as an INR greater than 1.6, ACA or ALT greater than 2000, serum bilirubin greater than 1.7 by postoperative day seven. Uh, statistical analyses were kind of as you'd expect. And then results. So, the, their entire cohort was 447 liver transplant recipients. Uh, a whopping 31% of those were DCD recipients, or 130, 137 out of 447. There were no significant differences between the DBD and DCD recipients, except for longer cold ischemia time in brain-dead donor recipients, and then more patients with MELDs over 25 in the, in the brain-dead uh, donor group. The most significant finding in their paper was that uh, median days alive and out of hospital was 355 days for um, brain dead donor recipients and 353 days for DCD recipients. And there was no significant difference between those. When you kind of uh, dig down into their, some of their secondary uh, outcomes, however, they found that there were many more ERCPs performed in the, uh, in the DCD group. So 43% of DCD recipients underwent at least one ERCP compared to just 21%, less than half the amount in um, the brain dead group. Uh, furthermore, the incidence of ischemic cholangiopathy in this cohort was uh, 12% in the DCD group and less than 1% in the DBD group. Early allograft dysfunction was also much higher in the uh, DCD group, almost 80% compared to 44% in the DBD group. And then they also uh, noted that uh, the presence of ischemic cholangiopathy was associated with um, decreased days alive and out of hospital. So even though DCD um, allografts were not themselves associated with prolonged admission and, and, and lower uh, days alive and out of hospital, DCDs were associated with higher rates of ischemic cholangiopathy, which was itself associated with um, uh, significantly decreased uh, days alive and out of hospital. Um, there was no difference in, uh, in, in the primary outcome in patients with early allograft dysfunction, and uh, one-year survival rates were the same across DCD and DBD uh, recipients. Um, so, in sum, there's a couple things that to bear in mind when I think we're thinking about the results of this study. Number one, this was performed at a center that has a lot of experience in DCD, that really believes in DCD liver transplant, and also is devoted to the outpatient management of complications of DCD uh, graphs, such as uh, ischemic cholangiopathy. And the authors go so far as to mention that um, in their discussion. Uh, so that's number uh, number one. And then number two, um, just, you know, as just to kind of reiterate, even though the authors weren't able to show a, a significant difference in days alive and out of hospital between DCD and DBD graphs, um, I, I doubt that these results would be would be um, 
transferable to other centers without the robust outpatient experience in managing ischemic angiopathy. But an interesting paper, and I think it's an interesting, um, I think that this will perhaps you know, you know, uh, color the way that I myself discuss risks and benefits of DCD graphs to, to lay people, to patients um, who come in for transplant evaluation. Yeah, that's a great summary, James. I think certainly uh, Mayo, Arizona has a lot of experience in this. And so whether this is generalizable, probably not, but maybe their model is potentially generalizable in terms of how they manage the patients. I will say, though, I think I like the metric of the DAOH days alive and out of the hospital. But um, as you know, a lot of these ERCPs take a toll on the patients, even when they're outpatients. I mean, they are they are wiped out. These are long procedures, stents in, you know, um, the, and and so I I think the the morbidity. It'd be nice to be able to include those into a metric in terms of the overall, you know, more, more, because that also adds a lot of cost too, not just being in the hospital. So bottom line though, I mean, if you can continue to reduce the, the percentage with ischemic angiopathy in, in the DCD population, um, it's going to make it metrics like this fairly equivalent to DBD. And especially with, um, the interest in machine perfusion and normothermic regional perfusion, um, to de- decrease the ischemic cholangiopathy that it just shows here that, you know, you can, the importance of it by, by diluting your whole DCD population and having a low rate of that, you're really going to have overall similar outcomes to DBD. And so, but I'm glad they, I mean, this is a large experience. So I mean, credit them to, for publishing, publishing this. But, um, I do think once you have ischemic cholangiopathy, that definitely, like you said, increases your, hospitalization, your your morbidities, the outcomes, but you just got to keep that percentage to be really low mm-hmm. as, as best as possible. That's sort of the message here, but, but an interesting one. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was like, a, you know, kind of um, uh, it, yet another, you know, descriptive statistic, you know, a, a new lens, you know, through which to compare DCD and DBD. For me, it's so important when you're kind of just trying to describe to a patient what their life will look like if they wait for a DBD graph versus roll the dice and accept a DCD graph. And this is just one more, yeah, one more way to kind of, you know, talk them through and also for practitioners that to themselves understand, you know, some of the consequences of, of these decisions. Yeah. Great. Very informative. Okay. How about the uh, adenovirus paper? So this paper um, is one of of many papers that have been published in the scientific press and then also a significant interest in this topic in the lay press. And this deals with an outbreak of acute liver failure in the pediatric population worldwide in the past kind of 18 months. Over a thousand patients have been identified. The exact causes have never been, have not as yet been elucidated, but the syndrome of kind of an inflammatory cascade resulting in acute liver failure in the pediatric population has resulted in um, the need for liver transplant in more than a few cases. So, so this is a paper from uh, the CDC as well as uh, Baylor and University of Alabama, Alabama Birmingham. And others, and it uh, basically is a is a is a, a case series of of two cases of pediatric patients who presented with uh, viremia and um, acute liver failure. So uh, they they describe a cluster of uh, nine cases 
of patients in the pediatric age group with acute liver failure and a diagnosis of uh, human adenovirus viremia. Molecular genotyping in five cases identified um, uh, human adenovirus variant 41. And then um, two patients from this uh, cluster uh, developed liver failure requiring transplant. This is, you know, kind of a surprise, I think, to investigators because adenovirus 41 is associated with kind of low-grade, self-limiting, you know, respiratory and enteric tract uh, syndromes. But in these uh, isolated instances, for an unknown reason, have resulted in uh, significant uh, morbidity. Um, so uh, patient one was a two-year-old uh, child um, in good health with no known uh, medical problems who presented with six days of jaundice, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and dark urine, and then uh, presents with a kind of a cholestatic laboratory picture, hypoglycemia, elevated INR, elevated ammonia, and undergoes a pretty extensive workup, including a post-FDA1 liver biopsy, serum IgG levels, which are not elevated, a human adenovirus, um, PCR from the serum that comes back as um, positive at 55,000 copies, as well as a whole slew of uh, additional uh, viral testing, all of which uh, returns negative. Uh, the liver biopsy performed on hospital day one shows a severe uh, inflammatory picture with many uh, neutrophils and interface hepatitis, some areas of necrosis. And then kind of of note, immunohistochemistry um, on the liver specimen was negative. Electron micro microscopy was also negative for viral particles, um, but adenovirus PCR and sequencing uh, performed on the, um, on the uh, formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded a liver uh, specimen comes back positive with an, uh, an adenovirus um, PCR. So this patient is managed with um, sodafavir, um, develops encephalopathy, uh, receives methylprednisolone, and uh, has persistently elevated levels of uh, human adenovirus uh, during this um, during this period of of, uh, of kind of medical support and really and, and treatment just with sodafavir. Eventually requires um, extra corporeal liver support. And then finally, the, the plasma levels of uh, human adenovirus become undetectable and, and the patient is eventually listed for um, liver transplant. It receives a, a standard um, immunosuppression um, regimen um, post-transplant, um, remains negative for human adenovirus, even in the face of um, immune suppression. And um, again, uh, the explanted uh, liver is negative for human adenovirus, except on a PCR of samples obtained via um, formalin fixation. And then uh, they, they report that the patient uh, is doing well uh, nine months postoperatively. Uh, second um, patient, fairly similar, four years older, this is a six-year-old patient, presents with a similar picture of jaundice, uh, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and fever, um, elevated ammonia, but normal synthetic function they mention. Uh, also has a, a human adenovirus PCR of over 70,000, um, is negative for an immunodeficiency workup, and has a biopsy, which again shows dense um, inflammatory kind of evidence of, of, of dense inflammation with uh, this lymphoplasmacytic inflammatory infiltrate. Um, no evidence of any other uh, viral infections. Um, and again, the only um, identifiable, the, the only method to identify uh, the adenovirus in the liver tissue itself is by this PCR from the fair, from the um, uh, formalin fixed and paraffin embedded um, tissue samples. So is is uh, also given sodafavir just like patient one 
eventually uh, is also given um, IVIG to treat inflammation. And then on hospital day six, uh, patient two meets criteria for something called hemophagocytic uh, lymphohistiocytosis, which is a kind of a profound systemic inflammatory cascade. So there's a, a little bit of a, a question in patient two, at least, if it was the virus itself that led to this uh, acute liver failure, or if it was this inflammatory cascade set off by a viral infection that that resulted in the liver failure. And it's just similar to patient one, um, patient two is um, eventually transplanted after um, plasma and whole blood PCRs um, become negative for human adenovirus. And then the authors report that um, uh, seven months out, the patient uh, is doing well. So these, um, you know, this descriptive case series of, of two patients treated for acute liver failure as a result of human adenovirus I think I mean it's it's interesting to anyone who who is involved in in the care of um, of, of pediatric um, patients with liver disease. It's good to know that that this syndrome is you know has been described in this paper, um, and it's a little bit of a roadmap as to how to how to to treat these people. And also, this paper does describe some of the diagnostic pitfalls of. Um, diagnosing human adenovirus associated with associated liver failure in, in children um, because uh, human adenovirus PCR may not be positive um, in plasma. There's a discrepancy in, in one of these patients between uh, plasma human adenovirus PCR positivity and whole blood positivity. The uh, uh, viral tests for human endovirus and liver tissue itself may not be positive, except using advanced um, tissue PCR testing. So, so I think it's, a, it's an illustrative and illuminating paper for anyone involved in, in the treatment of children with acute liver failure. Yeah, these are, I remember when these cases came about and, um, you know, this, this is reminiscent to some degree of um, herpes simplex virus hepatitis in that there's a, we, we had published on this many years ago, that there's a percentage of presumably immunocompetent hosts develop some type of overimmune response to the virus and for some reason develop liver failure from it. And that, that's kind of what you're seeing on the, the biopsies. It, it, it just the, the inflammation and necrosis. We always look for this whenever we have an adult coming in, but we, but I've never seen it in anybody who is immunocompetent in an adult. Um, I've only seen it in immunosuppressed patients or, or stem cell recipients, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think younger people have more of a robust immune system, and that's probably evident here as to why this occurred. And I think the other important thing is um, the outcomes here, while it's only an N of two, were good, most likely because the viral PCR was undetectable at the time of transplant. Mm. Uh, this this comes up with, with herpes hepatitis is that it's not a good idea to transplant these patients if they if they're viremic going into transplant and they have um, recurrent recurrence of HSV and everywhere afterwards is, is is common if you do that. So interesting cases and obviously these types of things are important to report um, to be able to identify because there does there's a treatment for it, the cydofavir and and that worked to allow these patients to get transplanted and and survive. Um, so it's, it's Help very helpful. Yeah, I mean the cause of this is um, unknown. You know, these are you know understood to be benign, self-limiting 
you know, viruses. One, one of the, the, the authors uh, suggests that um, uh, because of the COVID-19 mitigation strategies, that there's now a large pool of infection-naive children mm. um, yeah. as a potential cause of this. So well, that HLH, uh, I've definitely, I've not seen, I've seen that that's usually with Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. You see that, um, but certainly any viruses can lead to that. And it just, it, it really supports the kind of, that's a macrophage activating syndrome, mm-hmm. just an over exuberant immune response. And that sort of is kind of a hallmark for these cases. So good, glad there was a good outcome though. I mean, in terms of transplant and them surviving. So. Yeah. And then just one last thing. So um, the PC, the plasma PCR was yeah. negative at the time of transplant for patient one, but the whole blood PCR was positive at the time of transplant. So, ah, okay. It was probably just coming very down quickly that, um, and then once you remove the, probably the, the major source of the uh, virus is the liver too. Mm-hmm. Luckily it didn't persist. Okay, well, Roz. Well, this is we'll something your, completely uh, different, but yeah, you know, I have talk about a 180, 180 degrees. Yeah, <laughs> I've reported on uh, adeno in the kidney, and it's a different strain, but uh, and the outcomes don't seem as dramatic these little kids. So, um, this is a paper by Eric Paraxlis and Stuart Connectly. Stuart is a transplant surgeon at Duke. Eric is in the Department of Population Health. And it's the information designed to support growth, quality, and equity in U.S. transplant systems. This is a viewpoint paper that I'd recommend the readers take a look at. Um, as many of you know, know um, the United Network of Organ Sharing, the perpetual contractor for the OPTN of um, H of HRSA, the Health Resources and Service Administration, since 1986, has come under significant scrutiny, not only in the NASM report, but also the recent Senate hearing a few months ago. And so the authors here are suggesting a, a way of rethinking the delivery of care with a focus primarily on technology. And most of us know that that has been a very weak part of UNOS. And they uh, suggest the notion of creating what's called a new framework called Omnichannel. I was not familiar with this focus, but they keep alluding to Amazon and how Amazon has its tentacles and can, you know, uh, assess an aspect, uh, you know, when you order something, how does it get there in one day versus three? And, and, and technologically, they're very centered on the customer. So the notion here is not to blow up all of UNET, but to really centralize patient recipient data and donor data as the central aspect. Um, and that's where the inventory management and logistics would be localized and the notion would be that there would be decreasing data latency, you would remove barriers, you get more real-time decision-making in all aspects. Uh, right now, it's sort of like the old system where you'd have a patient intake and you'd have paperwork and you'd have a chart and they they sort of think about, when you think about how UNET is set up, it's sort of like those charts, you're binning information in different areas. And it, they feel that in order to create a better experience that this has to be done. An example of improvement would be, of course, many of us know real-time tracking. And if any of you know, I'm in a small Midwest, well, it's a big Midwest, but it's a regional airport. It is not getting jets around 24 hours a day. And so um, organ delivery is dependent on commercial sources and, and couriers. And I think, you know, 
why haven't we solved this? I mean, uh, you know, there should be a way of of having an IT system that could track organs um, universally. I mean, I have an Apple iTag, for example. I can follow my suitcase even when it's sitting in my closet at home. And not to be facetious, but they feel that this data-driven IT change with a focus of how they would put data in would really affect and create more opportunity to change policy. Um, it's a little difficult and it's a little abstract, I think, for some of us when we read this to sort of understand, well, how's that really going to happen? Um, but again, I think the notion of standardized technology where whether you're at your desktop, you're on your iPad, you're on your phone, whether it's a Google phone, an Android or an, an, an iPhone, it should all be uniformly working and available. And I think that one of the comments they make is that they recommend a comprehensive approach using algorithmic application of data sources, including things like the CDC vulnerability index and social security desk master file that have more detailed social, economic, and geospatial modeling. And for those of our colleagues that do this kind of work, it really is, it takes a lot of time to do it because they're constantly linking different data sources. They just don't have one data source that they can go to. They had suggested perhaps that one of the restructures or the important aspects of this is really the relationship of the OPTN with SRTR to get quality data. And they make some comments about making sure they're regular meetings and and providing multiple partners. And, and as the and full disclosure, I'm the chair of the scientific review committee for, for SRTR right now. And so I think we all would agree that we want to remove outdata, outdated data elements and improve definitions and and have a better structure. And I think the SRTR has been responding by task five meeting, which might be a potential paper we'll talk about in a few months, but really focusing on on metrics and what patients want to see. There was a reiteration in this paper about providing public data about organ utilization and not utilizing organs for transplant and felt that if we had more information about organ acquisition, implementation, utilization, that um, those data would be available on in a data-centric kind of uh, IT approach. Again, the devil, I think, is really in the details. I don't think anybody here disagrees that it's time for some changes. And again, I think they're reiterating that, you know, CMS has the direct authority in terms of renewing. Uh, there was a whole other thing about OPOs. And I think most of us are aware that CMS has new metrics and they felt that the integration of that information in this one system would be more more transparent to transplant practitioners, as well as potentially, you know, programs that are working to utilize those particular organs. So again, the emphasis of this is to really develop new technology. And, and they have some nice figures. They have sort of a screenshot of UNET and what it might look like and what the so-called omni-channel experience would be where everything is coming out of the patient. Uh, and then they also highlight some work by the Thoracic uh, Surgery Society where they have some data tracking uh, uh, boards or whatever that they use in terms of, you know, really sort of highlighting how to monitor at least surgical outcomes and such. So there are other models besides um, Amazon. So kind of an interesting read and, and, you know, somewhat constructive rather than blowing up everything. They're talking about, you know, significant modifications. Yeah, I I thought it was an interesting viewpoint. In fact, I just, for everybody, you can actually get a copy of, I have it on my desk here, the the NASM's report. You can actually purchase it, which kind of 
was sort of the lead into all of this, this review, this extensive review. It's a, it's not an easy read. It's a 250 page book on the report, but it, it takes a really deep dive into our transplant system and the areas of success in the areas of needing improvement. So, well, I have my cheat sheets for that report. So, <laughs> you need cheat sheets. Um, but you know, I think there are opportunities now, and and that's the field should be really thinking about maximizing the use of technology in a positive way. And and we've had sort of stops and starts, and it could be done better, but it also requires money and mm-hmm. an allocation, probably from Capitol Hill, to say, okay. I mean, a hearse's job is to provide resources and care to those that are um, disadvantaged. And it's interesting that transplant has come under this rubric for years now. And so there's an opportunity here, I think. All right. Well, last but not least, to take another 180, this was an interesting study um, by a group in Vienna. Uh, the lead first author is Moritz Muckenhuber and the senior corresponding author, Thomas Veckerly. And they were, um, they were studying an interesting question that I found to be very important in terms of designing these tolerance studies and the issue of using antithymocyte globulin in the studies because we know that ATG may be important early on to deplete the T effector size pool, but we also know that ATG can have effect on regulatory T cells and there are a number of studies now that are using Tregs, whether they're um, donor specific or autologous polyclonal Tregs, in in um, organ transplantation and in kidney and liver transplant, and and some of these protocols, when they're when they start at the time of transplant, include lymphodepletion therapy like ATG, and and so this group took the opportunity to determine. The correlation between ATG administration and effectiveness of their Treg infusion and the viability of their Tregs when they were given to the patients and what was the sort of appropriate timing between giving ATG and administering uh, polyclonal Tregs that would allow the polyclonal Tregs to proliferate without the ATG still kind of hanging around and, in, and inhibiting them. And while we know that this can happen, this study really more clarified the timing of this by, by looking at this in nine patients. Six of them were in a treatment group of getting polyclonal Tregs, and three of them were in a control group. And both of the, the patient populations re- received ATG 14 days. Well, they, were, they underwent leukapheresis to start collecting the material for, for Treg manufacturing and then we're given a single shot of 6 mg per kilo of ATG prior to tran- 14 days prior to transplant um unfortunately because of some patients developing serum sickness they had to reduce the dose to 3 mg per kilo and what they did is so 6 of the patients had received no immunosuppression um and received um autologous Tregs right after kidney transplantation and 3 of them had just maintenance immunosuppression. So they were kind of the control group without getting Tregs. And this included uh, Belatacep, Sirolimus, and steroids. So I'm sorry, not no immunosuppression in the first group, just no no additional ATG. The this, the control group got four more days of ATG and all of all of the patients got Belatacep, uh, Sirolimus, and steroids. And so what they did is they serially followed uh, very carefully 
a number of different markers. So one of them was a detection of active ATG, which is just a portion of the overall ATG that could be biologically active, and also Treg specific ATG. So the ATG that was still bound to Tregs when they when they analyzed the the patient populations. They also looked at total ATG ELISAs, anti-ATG antibodies, and then looked at in vitro viability assays of the Treg cell product from using patient sera to see if there was if there was residual ATG did that suppress Treg proliferation. And so just going to the results, it was clear that it was interesting that the Treg specific ATG levels were much lower in the cell therapy group compared to the control group, probably because the, the control group received much higher immunosuppression. And so without the concomitant early immunosuppression, the ATG levels declined very significantly, especially on Tregs in, in the patients who just, um, who were in the cell therapy group. At the same note, the ATG-specific antibodies, anti-ATG antibodies, which uh, were were very rapidly cleared in the cell therapy group compared to the control group. So that's kind of important that if you're immunosuppressing these patients, it seems that this may delay your clearance of anti-ATG antibodies and make it a less tolerogenic situation than without the without giving more ATG up front. The um, the second thing that I think was the most important finding was that there were they found that there was still some residual ATG in a couple of the patients, and this had a detrimental effect on the viability of the Treg cell product. So even if there were very small concentrations of ATG circulating, this had a negative effect on the viability of, of the Tregs. Where those cases where Five of six of the study patients that had cleared ATG to levels low for safe uh, Treg transfer, the Tregs were had good viability and proliferation. So basically, they they have this kind of window period of about two to three weeks under this protocol where ATG can be given, and then Tregs can be given subsequent to that. And I think it's um, and they also mention it's. You know, to, that this correlates with the rapid decline in these antibodies. Once that is, once these are really rapidly declining, um, that kind of correlates with the kind of loss of ATG in the system and the ability to give Tregs that have more viability than in the context of ATG being, being present. So my, t- my take home point from this, while it's only, they only had nine patients that it's, possible, it's very likely that ATG, if it's still hanging around, um, even in small concentrations in the circulation, that this may be a, a negative player in the developing adoptive Treg cell therapy. And there may be some value in, in measuring these antibodies and also measuring the um, concentration of ATG before giving Tregs. Um, and that was sort of the implication here, although they didn't they didn't specifically do that a priori, but it sort of would make sense. And maybe um, this need, these things need to be looked at in larger studies where ATG is used in a regimen that can induce tolerance and also, um, especially in therapies that are in vivo or ex vivo expansion of Tregs um, that may be affected by ATG. So I thought it was interesting. I hadn't seen anything like this before. Um, I don't know, Roz, if you had 
some some thoughts about well, this. Well, I have some old studies that have been done like 20 years ago, but um so just looking at the figures, so I didn't do an in-depth analysis, but they pick this one shot because they were prepping people. Was it the notion they wanted to limit? They're just going to prep somebody for this treatment before transplant. They didn't want to have yeah. repeated infusions. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. And it was it, kind of induction okay. induction before transplant to kind of deplete the recipient of effector cells and then give the Tregs after transplant. And yeah. the depletion was similar despite the one shot versus the four mini shots, I guess. Yeah. Because um, that was always something where there was a whole notion that you could give more at a couple of times and get better depletion. But the comparisons they make, it's hard for me to tell here, Josh, and I apologize. I didn't do my homework and read all these. Did they compare this to the regular treated pay, the controls? Yeah, they did. And there was yeah. no difference whether it's you know, because it is. Oh, I see. Okay, it is kind of funny. They had you know, more antibodies. Using... The decline in the antibodies was much slower in the control groups because and of the, so, the repeated dosing. Yeah, okay. because of the repeated dosing, and so they sort of suggested that if you're going to use repeated dosing, right, you got to wait um, even longer. You got to wait even longer to give the Tregs, even though the half life of ATG is like 45 days. It's really the active component that I guess right. can dissipate within 14 to 21 days. Mm -hmm. But I think the point here is it's kind of the timing of giving it. And also the monitor, the question is the monitoring of these levels of ATG in the system and the antibodies. Could that be important in when to actually give the patients the Tregs? Uh, we don't know that, but it biologically sort of makes sense that if there's ATG still circulating that mm -hmm. this may may kind of inactivate or decrease the Tregs you're infusing sort of makes sense but um they need to prove that but I, I think you know again this is a a study that was done that was trying to answer a specific question and I think it answered a lot of questions but the larger studies need to be done maybe using these monitoring tools you know to de to determine if if it can help with the timing of of you know the the timing of the course of these um, interventions. Well, certainly their supplemental table shows the active levels of ATG. So you have to like click on the link in the online paper to yeah. find it because you won't, when you download the PDF, you won't see it. And the levels, there's, there's, you know, a persistence in the detection of active ATG in all the control patients that got sort of the way we standard dose 1.5 mg per kg or, you know, some people use less daily for four days. So it, that's sort of interesting that they saw that, whereas the cell therapy groups really had very low level, non-detectable levels, interestingly, of active ATG or T-reg specific. It's interesting that, yeah, you know, yeah. I haven't Just really thought different. about that. And I was trying to think of like some of these non-human primates where they do this global depletion to make space. Um, I guess that in those situations, this is inapplicable because they're not doing adoptive transfer necessarily. Yeah. I think if you're doing adoptive transfer, it seems to suggest that you kind of need everything in a, in a uh, in a state where in an environment, maybe a, you know they have serolimus on board here on the patients, um, kind of a protolerogenic, and so to try to, to remove anything that could in, impact the uh, adoptive transfer therapy, or, or you know give it when it's when it's in uh, you know more of a situation where there's you know, less of that impact of the early induction therapy. 
kind of interesting. Anyway, well, yeah. well, uh, something to think about when we're designing our tolerance studies. So one more thing to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to thank uh, Roz and James for the great commentary and reviews of these uh, papers and. We will see you next month for the February edition of AJT Highlights. Uh, take care, everybody. Thank you. All right, thanks, Josh. Happy New Year. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 